0: Hello and welcome to another episode of At War, the podcast by the Conflict Law Centre at the Research Society of International Law. Today we have with us Mr. Bakar Zaidi. Uh, professor Zaidi is an Associate Professor of History at the Lahore University of Management Sciences. He holds a BA in Physics from the University of Oxford and an MSc and PhD in the History of, history of Science, Technology and Medicine from Imperial College London. His research focuses on the history of technology and international relations in the 20th century. And he has just recently published a book on technology and collective security titled Technological Internationalism. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, So I I want to start off our conversation based on something I read on Quora a while back. Um, You know, and someone had commented how the U.S. military is always five to ten years ahead in uh, of technology that exists in the mainstream um you know they refer to examples of the gps system which we used every day on google maps and and the internet with, without which we can't even think of surviving these days um and when we when we look back to technologies uh, such as the v1 and the v2 rockets during the second world war um do you think that this example of the, the military being a, uh, way more advanced still holds true today, especially when we look at companies like SpaceX and um, other private uh, companies in the space domain that are you know, trying to wrestle some of that uh, um, uh, technological control away from the military?
1: Yes, I, I think it's a very interesting question. Um, if you had asked someone this question about 100 years ago, they would have said that Scientific and technological innovation came from individuals, you know, great geniuses and great inventors like Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. They would have said that technological innovation comes from companies. And uh, 100 years ago, there were these huge American, German, British companies like DuPont or GE or Ford. Uh, or General Motors that were innovating and creating new types of technologies. But there's been a big shift in the last 100 years. Um, And the big shift has been towards technological innovation within state institutions and by militaries. Now, that may sound surprising because we're all used to hearing about you know, Apple and seeing Steve Jobs stand up in front of um, audiences showing off the latest uh, iPhone. Uh, We're used to hearing uh, about these large Silicon Valley companies with a huge market capitalizations that are based on their ability to innovate. And of course, there are all these very bright, uh, intelligent people working very hard for these companies developing new types of products. But the fact of the matter is that um, there are various stages in uh, technological research and development. And typically, companies tend to not do the more riskier work. So they prefer to do uh, to take existing technologies or nascent technologies that are very simple and then develop them for the market and for consumers, to turn them into market technologies. But the actual sort of more uh, fundamental scientific and technological research, the sort of work that might not lead anywhere, that sort of work is now very expensive and it's very risky, so companies don't do it. That sort of work tends to get done by governments within state institutions, especially uh, within the wealthier countries and especially in relation to military technologies, because that's where a lot of their interest is. So yes, absolutely. What we've found in in the last uh, 60, 70 years is that um, uh, militaries and governments have plowed huge amounts of money into developing new technologies. Uh, a lot of them had failed. They've tried all sorts of things, some of which sound absolutely ridiculous now to us. I'll give you one example. In the 1950s, the United States spent a huge amount of money experimenting, trying to use atomic bombs for mining and uh, landscaping. So they thought that they could could use bombs to create big holes. Um, They thought that they could use atomic bombs uh, and launch them out of the back of rockets to propel rockets into space. So these sound shocking to us now, But they tried them and spent a lot of money on them, and they failed. But there were other things they did that succeeded. And typically, these technologies would often then filter back into the civilian uh, sphere. Um, And you've just mentioned two examples. So one is, of course, GPS, where uh, military governments spent a lot of money on GPS systems. And eventually, a lot of these GPS systems were then modified uh, for consumer purposes, and then marketed by companies such as Google and others. And the other example you mentioned is the Internet. So the Internet itself is based on uh, distributed computing systems that were created by the United States in the 1960s. Why, why would the U.S. do something like this? Because they were worried about uh, nuclear attacks, and they wanted a computing system that would be decentralized, so it wouldn't be open to Soviet Union nuclear attack. And Mm -hmm. so they created these distributed systems, and then eventually they were modified in various ways within the civilian sphere, um, especially by physicists working at the uh, European Scientific Laboratory CERN, and then that became the Internet. So uh, yeah, and there are many other examples like that. Uh, Another example which is very well known to academics, and you can find it in various published books is actually uh, the Apple iPhone. So the Apple iPhone is built off uh, technology. In fact, the majority of the technology they use actually comes from military and state development. Right. Uh, I didn't in, know that. In the, Yeah, in, in the 60s, 70s. Uh, you mentioned GPS, but you know, touchscreens and various other components inside um, were initially developed by the US government.
0: Right, and so, and what I mentioned about Tesla and all these other companies, SpaceX and all these other countries, do you think now there's a shift, will there be a shift back uh, towards uh, innovation from companies and private stakeholders or do you think the military will still um, and and the government essentially will still retain the upper hand?
1: Well, uh, when I said that states develop technologies, actually they haven't developed them um, just by themselves. Right, A lot of technological development has actually taken place through uh, state-civilian partnerships. And we see that particularly in the US, where um, the United States government a long time realized that they couldn't develop technologies alone, so they developed them in partnership with research institutes and universities. So to give one example, the laser was uh, developed by, amongst other organizations, MIT, and the laser lab at MIT was funded by the U.S. military. Yeah. So the U.S. So the U.S. government uh, has had a history of funding civilian and private uh, uh, institutions to do the development for them on a contractual basis. Uh, and so what will what will I think see with companies like SpaceX is perhaps a closer partnership between um, these companies. And and the government, I think it'll be actually be increasingly difficult to disentangle them and to say that they're separate. And we've seen that, for example, with the existing U.S. arms manufacturers. So the very large private companies like Boeing or uh, General Dynamics, they uh, get huge amounts of military funding to carry out R and and D which they wouldn't do otherwise. Right. And a lot of that R&D then ends up in the civilian sphere. So, for example, the Boeing, the great Boeing jet, the Boeing 707, is uh, a great technological innovation. Uh, Boeing would never have funded that by themselves because there's such a big risk. Instead, Boeing was based off a a bomber design that was funded by the U.S. government. So the U.S. government gave Boeing a lot of money to develop a bomber. um, And once they developed the bomber, they modified it a little bit to build a large civilian airliner, the 707. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite difficult to, 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 to disentangle these. Sometimes we see companies like SpaceX as standing very distinct or very separate from state funding. But actually, increasingly, they are closely tied to the government. Now, the reason we think of SpaceX and other space companies is because traditionally NASA has carried out a lot of this research and development in-house. And that was true up to about the 1970s. From the 1980s onwards, there was a big move in NASA to outsource uh, logistics, to outsource even R&D. Even their large rocket bases are actually managed by civilian companies. They're not managed by NASA themselves. So uh, there was a lot of logistics outsourcing, and then eventually there was R&D outsourcing as well. So that process has been continuing. And I think the entry of companies like SpaceX, et cetera, just take it up two or three notches. But nevertheless, companies like SpaceX can't operate um, without state direction and probably without state assistance. So the two will go hand in hand um, where uh, it will become harder, I think, to kind of disentangle their interests.
0: Right. Um. So, based on one of the things you said about how the the government essentially funds or uh, promotes technological innovation in uh, um, in businesses and universities, what kind of lessons do you think Pakistan can get from this? So, you know, we traditionally we see our um, military industrial complex, if you want to call it, that is very very closed doors, and there's a lot of um, um, very standoffish. I I recently. Um, I think a year, a year or so back, there was a group of students from GIK who won an international competition in aviation or something, and they, they actually beat students from MIT. And I, you know, I was thinking all of these students they'll be um, they'll be scooped up by companies in the US because no one in Pakistan is going to give them the opportunity to you know, use their skills or use their um, um, innovative spirit to do something for Pakistan, and also. Uh, where we find ourselves now recent political uh, the recent political situation in Pakistan, there's always this debate oh we need to maintain relationship with country x or country y or country z because we get weapons from them because we are so dependent on all the so do you think there there's any lessons we can learn and since you're also an academic what can our universities do or the government do to foster that culture of innovation within our universities
1: well, I, I think that uh, an innovative culture in universities uh, can only work if you have pre existing large scale uh, civilian industries. Okay. So, um, the large innovative universities that we have in the West uh, don't exist in a vacuum, they exist as part of a wider ecosystem of technological innovation. Right. Um, some of a lot of which is in the military, but a lot of which is also in industry. Plus, you need large industries um, to uh, absorb a lot of the graduates that these university departments uh, produce. Mm. So actually, I think the most important factor that would lead to innovation broadly within the country, but even within universities, is actually innovation within Civilian industries, right so we need uh, we need what's sometimes called a large I- industrial base. I think that's a term that's sometimes used. We need um companies that produce a wide range of goods, not just simple packaged goods but engineered goods from uh, all the way from cars to solar panels to new types of materials to to uh, agricultural industry. And then once you have all of that, what you'll find is that it's possible to sustain R&D within universities that actually complements and adds to this. And um, of course, there may be a role for military funding as well as there is in the West. But I would also caution on that uh, because there there can be all sorts of issues with with military relationships as well. and typically uh, a lot of this state r d is done by extremely wealthy countries. Pakistan is a poorer country that first needs to develop an industrial base, and then it's possible to do a lot of this uh, very uh, sort of uh, uh, very expensive and very fancy r d. Right. But before you can get there, you know we, we need, we need uh, the production of lots of engineers who can be absorbed uh, you know in the marketplace. they can find jobs. Uh, and they can create for an, an, an industrial base, a technical base within the country.
0: Right, you know, it's interesting you said that because, you know, you always keep hearing about these big companies in the U.S. They are sponsoring research centers within the universities, and you would be very hard pressed to see something like that happen in Pakistan where, like, one of the biggest uh, chemical manufacturing companies or uh, uh, textile company manufacturing any kind, uh, sponsoring any kind of research and entities within our universities. So that's uh, uh, that makes sense, like, we need to do basic structural reforms before we can move on to uh, R&D.
1: Absolutely. And one of the reasons why it's very difficult to make these sorts of relationships uh, here in Pakistan is because of the general commercial environment and, of course, the legal environment. If we had all sorts of rules that would protect uh, copyright and more broadly ensure uh, a higher level of rule of law, then I think that it would be possible to build these sometimes very intricate and very complicated relationships. It's not surprising, frankly, that companies are hesitant to make investments where payoffs might be 10, 20 years down the line, when it's very difficult to see economically, legally, politically, how things would be two years down the line. Yeah. Right. So we need that level of political, economic and legal stability that would then allow these very complex and intricate uh, relationships to emerge.
0: Right. And also, I think uh, when you when you talk about politics, some um, uh, also political continuity when it comes to government policies, we've unfortunately seen how one government comes in and completely replaces the policies of the previous government, whereas uh, projects like these, as you said, which take 20, 30 years to develop, you need the the businessman, the investor needs to know that, you know, I won't be sidelined after three years or four years or five years. Uh, one last question about this whole technological development aspect before we move on. So you mentioned how a lot of these wealthy countries are, uh, are Capable of doing R and D, but do you think in the process they've also become gatekeepers of technology and you know increase the the gap between the have the haves and the have nots when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to states? You know, I've always been fascinated by the UK's university admission process, where where if you're a student from outside the UK and uh, you apply for s- certain academic programs, actually require a clearance. I think they call it the ATAS or something. So steps like these do you think they, they further deter um uh, technological development in our part of the world because you know because i remember when i was doing my a levels i always wanted to be an aerospace engineer and one of my cousins uh, i wanted to go to the uk and one of my cousins says oh but you you really can't go to the uk to do that because of uh, this was back in the late 2000s so all all things post 9 11 he was like there's no chance you go and go there and get to do that it's very difficult and So how, do, how detrimental do you think such policies are? And are they actually creating a larger gap between the developed and the developing
1: world? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It, wealthier countries and countries with technical know-how often try to protect their technical know-how and put barriers to allow their companies and their own communities to disproportionately benefit from that technology. Technical know-how, absolutely, and we see that in all sorts of ways, including all sorts of export restrictions on technologies, copyright. Once again, copyright rules, patenting rules, which are sometimes justifiable, but sometimes can be very unjustifiable. Look, for example, at attempts by large agricultural firms in America to patent uh, rice varieties that have been grown in South Asia for for you know. You know, for decades, right? So, uh, yes, absolutely. So, so so there is certainly an attempt. However, what's really interesting is that history shows us it's actually very difficult to stop the flow of uh, scientific and technical knowledge. Scientific and technical knowledge always spreads; it always spreads. Right. So, um, it's perfectly feasible for other countries to uh, absorb. Uh, uh, this technology uh, and, and to use it, no matter how much is attempted by the West or particular countries to keep these these technologies. And the biggest example of that, of course, is China.
0: Uh, say, yeah. But another
1: example is the Soviet Union. So the right. Soviet Union, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, imported large numbers of um, Western technologies and then copied them. So a lot of their high-tech, for example, military weapons were actually based off Western designs. And then eventually a lot of their consumer goods as well, for example, computers in the 1980s were copied from Western computers. Similarly, China has been very successful at importing Western know-how and then not only copying it, but supplementing it and using it to create its own uh, knowledge bases and technological innovation systems. Now, this isn't easy to do. And one of the reasons why China and the Soviet Union was successful, because they had pools of indigenous scientific and technical knowledge that could absorb and use this knowledge. So actually, I think the biggest barrier to the spread of science and technology is the lack of indigenous um, technical know-how that can use it and absorb it. Right. So one good example, of course, is nuclear weapons. If if there's anything that the history of nuclear weapons has taught us, it's that nuclear know-how always spreads. It spreads. It always proliferates. Right. right? Um, and we've seen that. Slowly more and more countries are becoming nuclear capable, and more and more will continue to be. I strongly suspect that over the next 10-20 years, there will be more countries that will have the capability of building nuclear weapons, even if they don't build them. Right? Right. Which is a very complicated know how that they're able to to master. Now, having said that, not all all countries can do that. So, what prevents other, sometimes very populous countries, from developing nuclear weapons? And the answer is that they don't have that technological and scientific base that allows them to kind of absorb these technologies. Pakistan, uh, even though we are a poor country, nevertheless had at partition, at independence, there was a culture of scientific and technological expertise at a very elite level in Pakistan. And that's what allowed us to actually create nuclear weapons. I,
0: and I know this is not necessarily within the scope of what we wanted to discuss, but why 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 do you think there's been a decay? Um, what's because you're right. Uh, you you said we need to have a, a base which can absorb all these technologies and we were able to go nuclear even though we were very poor back then as well. But what's caused the deterioration deterioration in our you know overall culture? academic culture scientific culture that we are we aren't able to do that anymore
1: Well, well, I I, I don't know if there's been a deterioration. I mean for example uh, We have all sorts of technologies with us today that didn't exist 20-30 years ago right. And a lot of them if not completely indigenously manufactured they are often assembled here in Pakistan um where so, so so i would actually say that uh, in terms of technologies and technological production and know-how we're we're actually far ahead than where we were 20 30 years ago sure. without doubt and you can even see that in very particular things such as for example nuclear weapons Uh, There's been all sorts of development in nuclear weapons. Pakistan has managed to um, develop new ways of launching weapons, has uh, uh, miniaturized them. Uh, They have different platforms. They have different better controls over them. So this is all within the military sphere. So there, there has been a lot that's been going on. Nevertheless, I agree with you. There's a general feeling that even though we've made this progress, it hasn't been enough. And I would certainly agree with you, it hasn't been enough. And I think the problem is that that ultimately, if you want sustained scientific and technological development at the very top, it has to build on a big base, a foundation. And the foundation has to be built on um, engineers, trained engineers and scientists. And then below them, it has to be built on um, technical numeracy, rational thinking. And below that, it has to be based on simple literacy. right? Right. So once you get these foundations working, then it's possible to build the superstructure on top. And I think Pakistan's some of the fundamental failings have been actually at the more fundamental levels where we've struggled to build primary education. Um, We build good primary education, then we can build all of this on top. Uh, Primary, secondary education. And I think Pakistan is still struggling there
0: absolutely absolutely uh, i just want to go back to what you mentioned about china and the soviet union and you said like how they've been able to build on technology that was developed in the west and how tech- we can we can't really stop technological flows across borders but i think there is um one thing building technology and building uh, developing those uh, um technolo- technological innovations and completely different thing sustaining them so you know i i take the example of huawei they 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 developed a product which was comparable, if not superior, to what the US was marketing. But then came the sanctions. Um, the US prevented its allies from, you know, adopting those technologies, even though, from a cost perspective, they were much more uh, they were much better as compared to what the U- the US-based companies were offering. So, do you think this will become a bigger problem moving forward, especially for companies like uh, countries like Pakistan, which are often at the crossroads with uh, with the West?
1: Well, I think the case of Huawei was uh, the, the case of a company that was trying to export its products to the West, right? And the U.S. has basically closed off the U.S. markets, and this was followed by the Europeans closing their yep. markets to 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 uh, you know to kind of uh, exports by Huawei from China into their countries, right? Chinese imports. So. Um, i mean pakistan is it it could be it, it might be it's it might be a problem um but uh, it, it won't be a problem if the country focuses on um building up technical expertise on building up um its indigenous uh, ability to innovate and then more more fundamentally to think rationally um, think analytically, think numerically, those are, those are very important skills that we need to give to our youth if you like, if I could use that phrase yeah. um, and then it's something that, and then everything else kind of follows from that right. The now the, the thing about Huawei is to do with um, imports and exports and yes of course there might always be uh, export restrictions, there might also be import restrictions so countries may stop for example, companies in Pakistan, from importing and using foreign technologies. That may well happen. And the way we can protect that is we need to build our indigenous technologies. Uh, And ultimately, the way to do that is to actually produce and export high-value goods that other countries need.
0: But see, the reason why I brought this up was if you can't export it, you can't earn money, right? That's right. And then you need that to sustain the, the economic... Uh, base, which is like you know, coming up with all that technology. That's right. that's so right. how do you uh, so so that that's my main issue with with uh, the Western gatekeeping, if I want to call it that. Like other countries, even if they can invest in uh, yeah. develop something, then come the restrictions. Oh, you you can't sell it to anyone but your own country. And you know, okay, maybe for a country like China, which has over a billion people, yes, there are enough local consumers for the product. But you know, what about
1: smaller countries? Yeah. So uh, no, no, you're absolutely right, and. Uh, th- I mean, I mean, on the one hand, countries need to develop technologies for which there are domestic markets, of course, but also uh, countries need to manage their international relations and their, mm-hmm. and their diplomatic contacts in ways that allow them to build commercial relations in a, a variety of different areas. Right. So if you have one uh, uh, country that you're closely allied to, and for whatever reason you fall out with them and, and they put trade barriers and they stop you from importing technologies or exporting your own goods, then you'll have other countries that you could turn to, right? Right. And you're absolutely right. So countries that have managed to build uh, industrial or technological leadership in all sorts of areas have not only done this through, the, through their own technological brilliance, but have also done it through being uh, 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 having international relations and international politics that allows them to import and export and withstand pressure, absolutely. So the iPhone is not only, we all know about it as a great success, not only because of the brilliance of Steve Jobs and his engineers, but also because of the the sort of a preeminent position of the United States in global international commerce.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, again, uh, you mentioned when we were ha- we were having this whole conversation, you sp- spoke about nuclear weapons, how in the future there, there would be many more countries which might be capable of going nuclear, even if they decide not to. And I think also in the past, we've seen countries which were very, very close, countries like South Africa or Brazil. Um, I think if I'm not wrong, even Argentina had a nuclear program mm-hmm. at, at one point mm-hmm. in time. Uh, but if we look at it from a more pessimistic perspective, do you think this does not bode well for the uh, for those who are against the proliferation of weapons and weapon systems, which can cause indiscriminate uh, harm to civilians, women, and children? Um, we talk uh, and it, within this context, we speak of like let's 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 reduce the threshold. Nuclear weapons have a very high threshold for to get to that point where you are able to develop nuclear weapons, but What would um, autonomous weapons or uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons, which are, I I would believe, relatively easier to manufacture than nuclear weapons. So do you think that does not then pose a greater threat to society and mankind, if you want to say, moving forward?
1: Uh, Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, If it's something that the history of technology has taught us, it's that weapons, like all technologies, proliferate. They will proliferate. Once a weapon is created and innovated and put into use, other militaries will also want it, other countries will want it, and they will find the capacity to import it, to engineer it, and to build it. And that's always been the case. We've seen that with almost any technology that you can think, any military technology that you can think of, without doubt. So I uh, fear that um, nuclear weapons will continue to proliferate. I think they will, because there are states that even now are attempting to develop the capacity to build weapons. Whether or not they actually build them is another matter, but but they're certainly obtaining the capacity to do so. And we'll see it for the new generation of high-tech weapons that are now emerging. So one example that's happened right before our eyes over the last five to ten years is for example the drone. Right. Um so we all heard of these uh drones that the United States used in the Middle East and other places, it, it, and in Afghanistan, of course, and maybe even in Pakistan, drones like the Predator or the Reaper but those were yesterday's drones and now there are other countries that can manufacture ma- manufacture them. and even now we keep hearing even pakistan has started to manufacture drones
0: absolutely so, and, and yeah. like when uh, sorry but yeah. a decade ago i would have thought that would be impossible that we would yeah. develop something like yeah. uh, comparable to what the us uses for its operations in afghanistan and other countries but now we we've, we've
1: even if, even if it might be very rudimentary but we we're, we're we're there so Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the recent uh, uh, conflict between Ukraine and and Russia has led to a very prominent role for drones in the conflict. But w- who makes these drones? They're not American. They're not British. Russian. They're not German. They're not British. They're Turkish. British. So it's Turkish drones that suddenly everyone is talking about. And it's Turkish drones that suddenly countries are li- lining up to buy. Yeah. So, um and Turkey is now manufacturing drones that are hugely in demand, uh, uh, in, especially in Asia and Africa, where countries don't have the budgets that allow them to buy very expensive uh, uh, Western-made made drones. So there you go. So the, the drone technology now is spreading, and there will be all sorts of countries manufacturing them and even exporting them. And I think even
0: in the, uh, the Azerbaijan and Armenian conflict, of 2020 even there there was a lot of uh, usage of drones but uh going back to um you know the debate about the proliferation of weapons uh, i was going through your paper on um, for the future of humanity institute and you raise a very interesting point how For the sake of humanity, if we want to control, like we would like to believe that we want to control the spread of weapons which can cause indiscriminate damage, but there are issues when it comes to secrecy and security, and what you've uh, called the transparency security trade-off. How important do you think these obstacles are when it comes to the governance of critical technologies as we move forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh,
0: sorry, could you also, for the sake of our audience, elaborate by what you mean by the security transparency trade-off?
1: Yes, so those are indeed fairly uh, critical uh, obstacles, prob- arguably perhaps the most important obstacles. So the uh, transparency uh, security trade off is very straightforward. It's that if states want to maintain security, then they feel they need to reduce transparency. And if they, in their weapons and in their policymaking, uh, and generally, in in whatever they do, they feel more secure. And there is a flip side, which is that if they increase transparency, so a lot of democracies want more transparency, but there's some areas where if they increase transparency, then they feel less secure. Right. Because they feel that by being very open about what they're doing, about what they're developing, for example, about how many bombs they have or their size and location of their of their arsenals, Then they feel that they are becoming more vulnerable. And they probably are becoming more vulnerable. So there's a trade-off. And what a lot of states uh, need to do and attempt to do is find a balance between the two. They try to be transparent about what they're doing, but not too transparent, so that they can maintain some level of security and feel secure about their weapons. Now, the problem is that that balance may tilt too much towards Uh, security and not enough transparency, right, and uh, it's very, in fact, it's often very easy for countries to do that, just to put up these barriers and uh, create walls of silence and secrecy around their weapons program and their weapons development, and that can be really problematic for those who are trying to reduce proliferation, those who are trying to limit Um, the spread of nuclear weapons, those who are trying to create multilateral treaties, they can even be problematic for rational decision-making. Sometimes states themselves can't make rational decisions about what they themselves need to do because there are walls of secrecy around their own policy-making that they can't get around. And we've seen that again and again in history where, for example, Various departments in the United States military or within the United States government put put in walls of secrecy around let's say nuclear weapons where even the president or policymakers didn't know what was going on. Right. The president of the United States did not know how many atomic bombs the, you know, the United States had in nineteen
0: forty seven right
1: which is shocking yeah. how can the how can the how, how can the head of the military and the head of the country make rational policy decision when they don't know how many bombs they have right and of course uh, uh, the president asked his chief uh, chiefs of staff and they didn't know either even the army chiefs of staff they didn't know how many bombs they had and they were forced to create military plans to fight the soviet union without knowing how many atomic bombs they had and uh, this was because there were various walls of secrecy that had been built around the nuclear weapons
0: program yeah this this reminds me of this whole concept by um barry buzan and his uh, his co-authors on like anytime you want to close the discussion you just securitize the issue you're like okay end of story whether it's nuclear weapons whether it's anything else but i think a- an interesting thing which came to my mind just now as you were saying this is creating all these layers or walls as you call them i think they, they actually make the, the situation even more tense like, you know, the example that you stated, if I am planning for uh, a response based on the fact that I have 10 weapons uh, in my arsenal, whereas in reality, I have 100. So, you know, I, who knows how in what what direction the, the, the conflict might go from that point onward because there, there is a lack of information that I have. But there's also another thing that you mentioned uh, while you were discussing this was treaties that are there to ban... Uh, or you know restrict the, sp- the proliferation of nuclear weapons and i was i was going through your paper on the nuclear test ban debate and um, it was very interesting for me to see how you said like uh, how you argue that sometimes states are not are disingenuous in their uh, efforts to you know or in their claims uh, to restrict technology um, uh, nuclear technology you meant, you spoke of the attempts by the us where on the face of it they were saying, oh we are going to restrict nuclear testing but where in real- the, the reality was something different. Uh, do you think that situ- this, that situation still exists even though because now many of those countries are part of treaties like the like the CTBT um, even though Pakistan isn't so do you think that that problem still exists on the ground?
1: Yeah, absolutely I mean it it, it one would have to look at the particular technology in the particular situation so it differs I, I don't think you can you can make a blanket claim that a state is uh, uh, disingenuous or is not um, uh, fundamentally interested in restrictions across the board. Instead, you look technology by technology, arms by arms. But yes, absolutely. But that problem, as you say, still exists. And countries uh, can be very disingenuous. They can say that we want arms control. And they can even negotiate for arms control without actually wanting to reach any settlement. Uh, absolutely the case. And in fact, that issue is not only restricted to armaments, it's generally true of all types of government negotiations. We see it in peace negotiations, we see it in treaty negotiations, we see it in economic negotiations. Whenever there's a negotiation, states would sometimes be willing to negotiate without having any real intention of ever reaching uh, an outcome. So in that sense, weapons uh uh treaty negotiations are just like any other treaty negotiation
0: and i think the us is very notorious in this regard like okay maybe with, with when it comes to nuclear weapons they are signatory of uh, of different uh, different treaties but for other treaties like such as the rome statute for the international criminal court the law of the sea conventions they are part of the negotiations so they can have it. If you want to call it an impact on the way that the negotiations are going and how the treaties develop, but they don't become party to it. And at the end of the day, what uh, we we used to hear this statement a lot when Trump was uh, president that oh, we this all comes under the U.S. exceptionalism to, uh, to international law, and we we because we are so exceptional, we don't really have to follow it.
1: Uh, That's right. I mean, the, the, I mean, no, absolutely correct. And just to broaden that a little bit, I I, I don't I actually don't think it has anything to do with U.S. exceptionalism. It's to do with power. That states are which are powerful have more leeway and more leverage uh, to get what they want and to do what they want in international affairs. Right. Countries that are less powerful are restricted in all sorts of ways, and often that means that they they that they do a calculus and they say that we're better off signing an agreement. Absolutely. Whereas states which are so powerful, superpowers, great powers, are actually able to uh, step back from multilateral treaties, such as, for example, the United States and the Landmine Treaty. They're able to step back and say, well, we're powerful enough in international affairs not to have to sign this treaty.
0: So but when when you talk about the Landmines Treaty, do you think it's... Uh, but what about countries like Pakistan, where we've seen landmines, you know, uh, they've created caused a lot of destruction. Uh, many innocent people have lost their lives. Do you think it's not in the greater interest of countries like us to be part of these treaties and conventions uh, or or implement them um, in in true letter and spirit?
1: Well, I I think that, you know, um, uh, I mean, landmines are a terrible weapon because they uh, usually hurt and kill many more civilians than they do um, uh, military uh, assets or military targets. And I think landmines uh, should be banned. Um, The issue is that landmines are seen by militaries as being uh, a very effective option uh, for defense, Um, especially so in countries which aren't necessarily very wealthy and they need to economize because landmines are cheap. So it's a real conundrum for a country like Pakistan. I mean, I think that 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 Pakistan is very vulnerable to landmine abuse. I mean, look at Afghanistan, for example. It's littered with landmines, yeah. and even sometimes
0: kids would pick them up or you know step on that. that
1: that's right. So I think that um, there was a time where military policymakers in Afghanistan probably thought that landmines were an excellent option. Of defending the country or defending its government, but instead, what's happened is that governments have come and gone, um, militaries have come and gone, there. but the landmines are still there, yeah. killing, um, you know, civilian populations and children. So, so uh, yeah, so landmines uh, are, I, I think, I think they're a trap. They they look effective, they look cheap, and in the short term they might be, but in the long term, they often only have negative outcomes, especially in our part of the world
0: right so um let's let's go back to nuclear weapons for one last time um last year the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons came in came into force do you think um such such a treaty can ever be effective especially when all the nuclear weapon states have said oh we don't want to be part of it pakistan's uh i think pakistan's official stance on this as well was we, we're not even part of the npt to begin with uh, but before that, are you, are you a nuclear pacifist or do you think nuclear
1: weapons should exist? No, I don't think nuclear weapons should exist. I think nuclear weapons are uh, hugely dangerous uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because uh, unfortunately we live in what sometimes uh, academics call an anarchic state of international right. relations, where there's just so much conflict. By conflict, I don't necessarily mean war, but you know rivalries. And naturally, this system of conflict or regional conflicts creates the push to develop uh, nuclear weapons. So once you have so much nuclear weapon development and proliferation, I think it will continue over the next few decades, then there is a risk that they will be used, not necessarily in a very big way and not necessarily in in a global war, but, for example, in a regional conflict, let's say in South Asia or maybe... Uh, between Asian powers, regional powers, or maybe in the Middle East. And now, of course, suddenly Europeans are realizing that there is a risk, however small it might be, that nuclear weapons are used in Europe. And this is because of the war um, in Ukraine. So um, once we have nuclear weapons, and most states will have them 20 years from now, there's a risk that they'll be used. That's the first danger. The second danger, and the the one that in some ways worries me a bit more, is that historians are discovering that nuclear weapons are very difficult to take care of and very difficult to control. And there's a real risk that we might have accidents. And uh, there is a book which I would recommend called Command and Control by uh, an American journalist, Slosser, who's gone out and dug up the history of nuclear accidents in the United States and he's published his book which has been eye-opening because it's shown that the United States itself has come close to nuclear disasters many many times from bombs bombs thermonuclear bombs being dropped out of bombers by mistake. Yeah, the, we call it the bro-
0: broken arrows, I think. Like, yeah. There's, I think the U.S. has the highest incidence of bombs that have
1: gone missing. The, the, that's <laughs> right. And there's one particular incident where the bomb was dropped by mistake and it had a number of fail-safes and two of them failed. So they have three fail-safes and only one fail prevented it from exploding. But there have been many other types. There have been fires in nuclear silos. The fires have happened in places or in ways that no one really foresaw. Um, there can be command and control issues. So, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, uh, very young uh, bomber crews were individually given control over nuclear bombs and told that it was up to them about whether or not they wanted to use them. Um, so, and, and that's that's a that's a command and control issue. So, you have all sorts of problems with nuclear weapons. They are very very difficult to keep safe and. The problem with nuclear weapons is that you have a small mistake and the results could be disastrous. They can be absolutely disastrous. So um, those are the two big risks and I worry about them and I think we should all worry about them a lot.
0: Um, if I may play the devil's advocate for, for a bit over here, what would you then say to scholars like um, uh, Waltz and Mearsheimer who argue that you know no nuclear weapons actually create a more safer world because the price... Mm-hmm. Of using them, the cost of using them is so high, um, countries would not use them, uh, and it actually, you know, ensures their safety. And especially when one looks at this in the context of countries like Pakistan, which have a stronger adversary um, uh, as their neighbor um, with a much larger conventional uh, military capability. So, you know, there's there's a, there's a regular argument that you know these nuclear weapons have actually guaranteed our safety. So, you know, they might be risky, but they're worth the price.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think that argument exists. And that argument makes sense. It makes sense within the context of uh, regional rivalries. It does. It does make sense. It makes sense within the context of global rivalries. There is an argument to be made that mutually assured destruction actually, in some ways, may have prevented uh, uh, an open all-out war or conflict between the Soviet Union and, and the United States. Right. But having said that, I think that, um, so I, I, int- I entirely agree with that. And I, and I also appreciate that, that, that to weaken that argument, one needs to actually reduce conflict in international affairs. I mean, ultimately, unfortunately, I think it's going to be very difficult to get rid of nuclear weapons. And probably one of the best ways to get rid of them is to reduce conflict in international right. affairs, to try to build positive relationships between states such as the ones that we see between states in Europe. I mean, there are countries in Europe that hated each other 100 years ago at the level of governments and often at the level of their citizens as well. But now they have very brotherly relations. So why can't we do that in South Asia? Why can't we do that in other parts of the world? So absolutely, I, I, I agree with that. Having said that, I think that um, these types of arguments that point to the utility of nuclear weapons in international affairs, and I'm aware that there are all sorts of positives for states when they're trying to play uh, international diplomacy, absolutely. Um, that, That there are negatives and that, you know, there was a hot war between the Soviet Union and America. It didn't take place directly, but it was fought through proxy wars. It was fought in Afghanistan. It was fought in the Middle East. It was fought in places in Africa where millions of people still died. Yeah. Um, so that's true. And secondly, it, uh, nuclear weapons are a burden. They're an economic burden
0: yeah.
1: uh, on countries. So they they might have brought some level of security to poor countries that have them, but then poorer countries pay a huge and disproportionate economic price. Countries like America can afford to have huge nuclear arsenals because they're hugely wealthy. But even wealthier countries like Britain, for example, have been cutting back on nuclear spending. So even the wealthier countries that are saying, and even on their nuclear arsenals, they've been cutting back on spending in all sorts of ways. So I think that there are trade-offs and one needs to be aware of them. Um, but I'm, I'm aware that the countries who who and policymakers who make a calculus do see positives. Uh, and of course they will continue to see positives when you have a very a state of international affairs where there's so much conflict
0: you know you you talk about economic costs I, I came across a number a few years back I don't know whether it's accurate or not like with regards to Pakistan's nuclear weapons it, it said something it, it, cost, it cost Pakistan around 100 or 150 million dollars to develop a nuclear warhead and you know again I don't know whether that number is accurate or not but when I read that I was like we are a very poor country think of what we would be able to do with with 100 million dollars but then the other thing is because of this uh, constant competition that we are with with regards to India um, we are developing more nuclear weapons than what what India is developing so which means the economic costs for us are higher as opposed to India even though India has a much stronger economy so you're right so it's and and of course policymakers uh, would have their own uh, calculations when they make these decisions but uh, when you see so much poverty around in your society and so many other things which can be uh, improved, uh, so you do ask the question, what's, is there really a benefit?
1: I, I think policymakers need to ask themselves, how much poverty are we willing to accept in return for having nuclear weapons? And of course, um, Zulfiqar Bhutto, uh, 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 the, the previous leader of Pakistan famously said that I will develop nuclear weapons even if uh, people have to eat grass. Yeah. Right. So that is the that is the extent to which certain policymakers were willing to go right. to develop nuclear weapons. Um, can we still think that way? Can we still afford to think that way? I think, I think that's one question. The other example I would point you to was the rivalry between the Soviet Union and America. That's a very interesting rivalry because by the early 1980s, the American political, uh, policy-making establishment realized that the Soviet economic system was collapsing and they couldn't afford to carry out massive research and development and, and continue the arms races in which the Soviet Union was locked with the United States. So what did the United States do? They actually built a purposeful policy to try to push R&D development, to try to, in ways that would accelerate the arms race, to bankrupt the Soviet Union. And that's exactly what happened. By the mid-1980s, there was a truly visionary leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, Gorbachev, Gorbachev, who realized that the country economically was 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 will end up eating grass, simply that they could keep up with all these different types of arms races with with the United States, and yeah. they realized that they just couldn't do it, um, and that led to the end of the Cold War. So um, I sometimes fear that the Indian economy, which is so much bigger than the Pakistani economy and has a much larger and broader base, is able to sustain arms races in a way that the Pakistani economy can.
0: No, absolutely agreed. Um, so going back to the the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons before we close, do you think um, such a treaty will ever be able to, you know, uh, uh, help the world get rid of nuclear weapons? Or do you think, or do you agree with what you know? Um, I think it was who, uh, Fukuyama stated that. History uh, is—you can't go back once something has happened. It's very
1: difficult to go backwards. Um, Look, it—I don't. Fukuyama didn't quite mean it in this way. So I think that in terms of weapons, it is possible to go back. The big example, of course, is uh, chemical weapons, where chemical weapons are developed uh, during World War One. They're widely used in World War One, and yet afterwards, countries agree to restrict the development of chemical weapons, to restrict their use, and then largely uh, restrict its use. Of course, they still use them in all sorts of ways. For example, the United States develops napalm yeah. and then uses it in World War I and its subsequent conflicts. But other types of chemical weapons, like poisonous gases, are not used widely, um, even though there have been all these wars where they might have been used, without doubt. So um, it is possible to actually roll these things back, but you need consensus. And the problem is, how do you develop that consensus? Currently, in nuclear weapons, that consensus does not exist. In fact, I would say that in policymakers, a consensus is the other way that we need to continue developing nuclear weapons. So I I I, I think that we need to fight for uh, arms control on nuclear weapons. Um, I think it's very difficult to do.
0: And perhaps also unfair when you look at this group of eight, nine, ten countries who have nuclear weapons who are essentially dictating the entire world, oh, you know you all of you can agree that there should be no nuclear weapons, but as long as we say that there should be nuclear weapons and we don't let go of them, there's nothing really the treaty can do
1: absolutely right, so one way to build confidence is to unilaterally disarm right, and uh it's perfectly possible, we know it's possible because actually. The Soviet Union and the United States have already done it, partially done it.
0: There
1: there were nuclear treaties signed in the 1980s in which both of them reduced their arsenals.
0: But would you not say uh, in in those scenarios, like, you know, okay, you had like 10,000 and now you've dropped your arsenal down to 2,000. But now you have so much more destructive weapons, like those those 2,000 weapons in your current stockpile are perhaps more uh, catastrophic than the 10,000 that you had like a few years ago.
1: Well, yes, in some ways, yes, they are. They're more technologically advanced. um, But uh, nevertheless, one can see, uh, even if there's development in other areas of nuclear weapons, one can see a reduction uh, on one side. So, yes, it's partial, but it it didn't necessarily have to be that way. The United States could very easily, or the Soviet Union, have kept those weapons and then developed everything on top, right? But they didn't. I mean, they cut some of it back. And by the way, some of it they they cut back because it made sense for them to cut it back. Some of these weapons were obsolete; they're very expensive to maintain. Yeah. They could take out the nuclear material and recycle it and use it in other weapons. So there was a lot of that going on. There was an economic calculus for some of it that made sense. But nevertheless, on top of it, there was a real sense that amongst policymakers. So if you look at the policy making at the time, they were saying we have too many nuclear weapons. Right. So there was a time, it was possible to think in this way. And my hope would be, as you say, that the nuclear leaders, the ones that have the largest arsenals, do um, uh, do take a step forward and show the initiative and, and carry out some sort of unilateral disarmament. It's very difficult to do, and I can't necessarily foresee them doing it, but it's something that I wish they would.
0: Right, so just one last question. You've um... You stated how the international world is very anarchic in nature, uh, but you also hope for a better future uh, moving forward. So um, in, let's suppose, uh, if you were to make a prediction for the next 50 years, which side would you think, which, which world view would end up dominating the Hobbesian world where, you know, every country will remain entrenched in this uh, eternal uh, conflict paradigm or uh, a world which is based on consensus and cooperation.
1: Look I, I I would want a world that's based on consensus cooperation, on um, acceptance of difference. I think that's so important. And maybe that's that's one place we need to start in this country, especially but all around the world is we need to accept uh, and celebrate difference right that you and I are different that, 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 and we're different from everybody else. We need to accept that. Absolutely. Be more accepting of that and celebrate it and see that as a source of happiness, as a sort of source of strength for our communities, for our nation, for our peoples. Um, I think that's the pathway to greater understanding, you know, greater empathy. We see it in Europe. You know, I was in the Netherlands um, just uh, a couple of months ago and I was struck by how accepting <laughs> people there are of other cultures, other identities, other religions. Um, And I think that we need more of that around the world. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of things that are pushing against that. Um, There are, uh, there's a lot of hatred. Um, There is uh, a lot of um, stresses that that are pushing us towards a Hobbesian world. As you, as you call it. One stress that we haven't mentioned, of course, are uh, are, are the climate emergencies right. that are now slowly uh, enveloping us and almost drowning us. Yeah. And countries like Pakistan are going to come under huge amounts of stress from the various uh, environmental and ecological crises that are creeping up on us. And they're in fact are already here Absolutely. and impacting yeah. us. And unfortunately. One of the effects of these environmental crises is they will lead to more conflict, both within the country and outside of it, internationally, globally as well. So we uh, need to be aware of these crises. We need to uh, find ways to fight them. And as you mentioned, consensus, cooperation, um, I think are central to dealing with these issues.
0: Absolutely. So um, on that note, let's hope that the leaders of the world um, are able to come together and establish some of that consensus. This was a very fascinating conversation. We could, I, I truly feel that we could keep going, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have to wrap it up now. Thank you so much for being part of Uh, At War. uh Thank you everyone for tuning in and please uh, tune in for future episodes as well.